0: We're going to talk about some great sports history from the late 60s and early 70s as we have Dr. Gregory Kalis on to talk about his latest book, Beyond the Black Power Salute, Athlete Activism in an Era of Change. Dr. Kalis is coming up in just a moment to tell us all about the history. Hey, this is Darren Hayes. You've probably heard me on the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch. Well, welcome to my journey of learning more about sports history, and we're going to do it by learning about the great athletes and the uniforms that they wore as they both tell a lot about the games that we love and have watched so much throughout most of our lives. These are the chronicles I'm going to share with you on what I've learned through my journey in the Sports Jersey Dispatch. Hello, my friends of sports history. This is Darren Hayes of the Sports Jersey Dispatch Podcast. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to all great things in sports. And uh, today we have a great uh, episode that we're going to be talking to an author of a really fascinating book that uh, really thought provoking and very historic. And it is called Beyond the Black Power Salute athlete activism in an era of change and dr gregory j kalis is the the author of it and uh, we'll bring him in right now Uh, doctor uh, welcome to the pig pen
1: hey thanks for having me glad to be here
0: this is a, a, a treat to have you on here because your book, uh, I, I told you before we came on, I, I read the, the cover and, uh, you know, they say, don't judge a book by its cover. And I, I should have heeded that warning, but I, I said, okay, this is, you know, uh, about, you know, maybe black Panthers and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, some of the things I expected, most of the things I did not because, uh, I love history and you really took me on a historical journey of things that I thought I knew, but I really didn't. And, uh, I appreciate that.
1: Oh, well, thanks for saying that. It's great to hear. And, and yeah, I think one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to, you know, a lot of times if people think about athlete activism in the 1960s, they think about Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the metal stand with their fists up in the air, right. That iconic Mm -hmm. pose. And there's been a lot, a lot of good stuff written about that and, and films made and, uh, But yeah, I wanted to go beyond that. And I wanted to, there's a time, this is a time period of about 12 years that I focus on from 1964 to 1976, when there's a whole lot of stuff happening in all kinds of different sports and it's men and women, it's professionals, it's amateurs, it's black and white, all kinds of athletes are getting involved in activism. And and I wanted to tell some of those stories and also see if I could find some connective threads to tie them together.
0: Well, you certainly did that. But let's start back at the beginning. Let's uh, start back with with you, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Sort maybe give us the five cent tour and how you became to the point of writing a book on uh, political activism and and sports because it's an interesting mix there.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I <clears throat> this is actually the second book that I've written, um, and, and the first one that I did came out of my my doctoral dissertation, and I had my PhD in history from the University of North Carolina. Um, and my first book was about uh, the desegregation of, of college athletics, uh, men's college athletics in particular. And I looked, that was a longer time period, a period I was looking from 1915 to the 70s at, at different case studies of how people responded to uh, the integration of college sports. Um, but when I was doing the research for my last two case studies, which took place in the 60s and early 70s. I just came across so much interesting material about how athletes of of all different kinds were getting involved in activism. And, and one of the things that I came across was uh, actually foundational to the chapter that I have about the Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier fight. Um, and I came across these letters to the editor and Ebony and Jet in response to that fight. And it was so fascinating how passionate people were about that fight and how deeply they invested that fight with political meaning and and you know that that meant something well beyond boxing and i said i've got to come back to that and um and so i you know i wanted to do more with that and as i i was doing more with that i also kept you know, wanting to find a book that had a nice summary of all these different athletes who were who were getting involved. And I and I kindly finally came to realize that 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 summary and that synthesis wasn't out there. And if I wanted that book, I was gonna have to write it. Uh, so that's, that's what led me, uh, you know, to, to go down this path and and, and write this book.
0: Yeah, let's. Uh, I mean, that, that's interesting. Uh, the book doesn't start with uh, that topic with the uh, Ali and uh, Frazier, but that's probably, uh, you know, I, I was born in the, the mid 60s, so I don't remember. I was a little too young to remember the fights. I remember Muhammad Ali fighting. I don't know that I remember those particular fights, uh, right. but uh, I do know that I've read things and seen uh, items on YouTube or clips on, you know, a history program or something that, uh, you know, very well promoted fight, very probably one of the most famous fights, both of the, their fights that they, they had and uh, very well publicized. And I always thought it was just a, you know, heavyweight championship. And these guys don't really like each other because of it is of, you know, they're just opponents in the ring and they both want the same thing. So that makes them maybe not like each other and you know mm-hmm. the whole Howard Cosell building it up and all that stuff. But what you did is uh, peeled back the onion a little bit in your book and sort of put those, uh, the political and uh, economic undertones to it that I never realized were that happened. and uh maybe maybe you could speak on those just a little bit,
1: yeah. I mean, I think the the Ali and Frazier fought three times um and and the first time that they met is in March of seventy one. And at that point, Muhammad Ali had just returned to the ring. he'd he'd fought a couple of warm-up fights. um, you know, he'd been out of boxing because of uh, his, his refusal to serve in Vietnam. And while he was out of boxing, Frazier had become heavyweight champ. So what you had was two undefeated boxers who were going to square off for the heavyweight championship. And you know you had two African-American men who were, you know, squaring off for this title, <clears throat> but they took on all kinds of political meanings because, you know, Ali was opposed to Vietnam Ali was so outspoken in his criticisms of, uh, you know, racism as he saw it. He was a, a member of the Nation of Islam, which made him again very sort of controversial. He had changed his name; all of these things that made him a kind of symbol of defiance and outspokenness, and that really made him a kind of uh, uh, a lightning rod, or you know, a supportive uh, – of it was one that, that lots of people rallied to, especially younger, sort of more. Um, you know, socially radical, quote unquote, uh, fans and 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 things of that sort. Joe Frazier, on the other hand, was more buttoned down. He wasn't as outspoken. He supported service in the Vietnam War, even though you know, he wasn't, uh, he didn't serve. Uh, he was more conservative politically. He was a Southern Baptist, right? And and so he kind of represented this other model of kind of keep your nose clean, be modest, work within the system, um, and because of that they took on you know fans and and commentators just really invested these guys with with those two meanings of sort of different models of black manhood different models of what it meant to be an american uh and and the fight took on all kinds of extra dimensions well beyond the fact that it was two heavyweights uh, undefeated squaring off for the for the championship and the discussion about that was was intense and, and you're right to point out one of the big things was there was a lot of economics that were wrapped up in this as well, which makes it even more complicated because there were questions about the fact that you had two black boxers uh, you know, squaring off. It was going to be, I mean, the ticket prices were were huge. Everybody wanted to watch it. There was so much attention to it. Um, but controversy ensued because the two guys who were promoting the fight were two wealthy white men. Uh, Jack Kent Cook, who was owner of, you know, sports franchises uh, and and a white booking agent named Jerry Parencio, they had bought the rights to the fight. And so this led to, you know, kind of controversy and debates. What are we doing? Are these kind of, you know, as they say, gladiators, Black gladiators who were purchased for the night? Uh, And so it raised these really interesting questions about not only what kind of model of Black manhood was the proper one to follow, but also Uh, You know, who really uh, uh, controlled the power dynamics, who controlled the purse strings, who had clout in sports. Uh, And so a fascinating sort of discussion surrounds that fight uh, and, and spills out even after it ends. You know, that segment
0: of the story, I believe you have a whole chapter and maybe some parts of other chapters on it. As I was reading through that, I'm, I'm reading along, you know, soaking up the history, reading along, read along. And the thing that, uh, and pardon my pun that punched me in the face <laughs> was that, you know, after, um, Frazier won that first fight and you have a, a segment of a, I believe like a 22 year old Bryant Gumble in tears, and then you, you're uh, referencing other, other, uh, you know, Black Americans that are in tears because Ali had lost that fight, and I didn't realize the the implications of the emotional drain on a part of the population because of that. You know, that's that's pretty traumatic.
1: Yeah, it was right. It was astonishing, and and again, that's you know, if you think about where this book was born, in a lot of ways, it was born from those anguished letters to the editor in Ebony and Jet, and. Brian Gumble talked about that, you know, his memory of of walking around in a daze after the fight, and people calling into radio stations, and just couldn't believe, you know, because Ali represented so much more, um, in in so many ways, uh, and it, it is, it says something about how sports can take on all kinds of meanings beyond simply the playing field of the ring, um, and, you know, I opened the book actually, in the, the prologue is with Muhammad Ali in 1964 um, because he's so, if you want to tell the story of, of athlete activism, uh, you know, in that sixties and seventies period, I think you have to look at Ali as the main figure um, around whom so much of this spins and who inspires so many people. Um, And so, you know, I opened in 1964 after he, just after he wins the heavyweight championship of the world and he's meeting the press the next day, it's a big upset win. And, you know, he says this astonishing thing to the press, which He says, I do not have to be what you want me to be, right? I'm free to be, you know, who I am. And, and that was a, as I call it in the book, it's sort of declaration of independence, right? For a black male athlete to say, I am going to be my own person. I'm not going to play by your rules, that sense of defiance, um, you know, I think when Ali lost for people like Gumble, it was crushing because he had, you know, kind of stood up and been himself and not. not sort of played along with the power structure, right? He had really sort of been his own man. And, and I think that's what was so crushing to so many people.
0: Never realized the impact of it, but I'm, I'm glad that you shared that because, uh, you really make a great point of it. And, uh, you know, it's not the thing that you throw right out at, at first. Too, you're you're telling that story and all the implications uh, that are going on with that. Now, since you you mentioned the prologue in the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. I I really found that interesting, and uh, you really threw me for a loop here because you start off before uh, I believe you have your acknowledgments, and then right after that, before even the prologue, there's a timeline. And I'm yeah. sitting there, you know, I'm I, I'm having the title of the book again, the cover of the book in my head. I'm seeing the timeline. I'm reading it. I believe you have like thirty some uh, references of uh, important dates, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh my gosh, okay." And I read your bio. He, he's a professor, and I know what textbooks are. They give you the answers at the back of the book. He's giving me all the answers before the the story starts, <laughs> and I'm. I, I said, "Okay." you know where's this going to go from here and it was interesting how you did it and you went into the the prologue but then you went into um the chapter by chapter synopsis at the beginning which again i'm like going wow how where's he gonna go from here he just did he just tell the story did he but it is it unbelievable how you took you you planted that seed those those couple seeds in the beginning and boy did they blossom as i got into the chapters of the book uh you know <laughs> Like you said, you you talked about Ali a couple times in there mm-hmm. and we got in that Ali Frazier part. Boy, it was very expansive. And so I appreciate you. You took my my mind on a little journey that was unexpected. And uh, those are always a little bit delightful when you're reading a book.
1: Oh, good. Thanks. Well, yeah, you know, that's a it's interesting. I I hadn't really thought about the idea of that table of contents, uh, you know, giving anything away or, you know, and I, I think <laughs> I wanted to include that in some ways just so that if people could uh, you know, because part of the whole, the point is to think about the fact that all these things are happening in a, in a very concentrated time period, and to put them in dialogue with one another. Because the way I arrange the book is to do sort of case studies of certain issues or certain uh, you know major events, right? Depending on what the chapter is, and so. I thought it would be helpful to have that timeline to refer back to, to think about, okay, this is happening at the same time as this is happening and, and to kind of keep that structure, right? So we could refer back to it. Um, but yeah, as you say, also to plant some seeds to say, here are some of the things that are coming coming up. Let's see what we can make of them, right? What are the larger meanings? What are the larger insights we can get by looking at all of this stuff together?
0: Sort of have, uh, you know, after Ali and as you sort of getting the beginning of the book, you you sort of, you bring us to what? My expectation was by the title, you're talking about John Carlos and Tommy Smith at the Olympics and the the protest of the black gloves uh, being raised in in the air. And then you you take us on the journeys of some of the parts unknown to to me, you know, maybe not being old enough to remember it and maybe not uh, paying attention close enough uh, in uh, history class or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I really appreciated how you did that. And, uh, you know, especially, uh, being a, a football historian, a football guy, I loved the Jim Brown story and I knew most of it, but I didn't know the the details of it. And maybe you could talk a little bit about Jim Brown and the, the black economic union.
1: Yeah. Jim Brown is, uh, was an interesting guy. And, and I think one of the ways I came to Jim Brown and, and the black economic union, um, was again, I, I as I was doing the Ali Frazier work, I got to thinking about sports and I got to thinking about the connections of economics and sports. And you know, Brown, as you know, was greatest running back in NFL history. Um, and um, but also, especially later in his career, de- developed a re- reputation for being a bit more outspoken and 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 really kind of standing up for, um, you know, himself, but also challenging, you know, uh, problems or or when he saw them. Um, And when he retired from football, which was a shock um, because he was still in the prime of his career, you know, one of the things that was on his agenda, um, he was going to, he was working in Hollywood, being an actor in Hollywood, but he also had created this organization uh, originally called the Negro Industrial and Economic Union and it's later changed to the Black Economic Union, easier to refer to it by that. Um, which he thought would be a way to kind of leverage his fame and leverage the fame and success of other Black athletes to help the African-American community economically, right? To provide a way to boost up the community by creating a kind of network of business leaders, by having uh, educational classes and forums to teach people, you know, money management and and business development, um, and to kind of put together various programs along those lines uh, in places across the country. And it was... Wildly popular, Um, you know. I had heard about the Black Economic Union, but when I started getting into it more, it was striking to see how much positive press he got for this in both the mainstream press but also the African American press. Um, And I think he really plugged into uh, that whole kind of self-help, lift your lift yourself up by your bootstraps kind of ideal that circulates in American culture. Um, And he also fit the political currents of the time, you know, when he, when the Black Economic Union gets underway, um, it's 1966, when it's getting some of its peak funding, it's during the time when, you know, Richard Nixon gets elected in 1968, and um, Nixon emphasizes Black capitalism, right, that's his solution to the economic inequalities is to promote capitalist development In the african-american community and so the black economic union fits right in with that and so brown's able to get some federal government money he gets private foundation grants and it seems like a real success story they open up offices in places like you know cleveland and los angeles and kansas city has a really thriving office and um and and lots of positive attention starts to circulate around this yeah
0: it's uh i i didn't realize that uh you know I, I'm always thinking of him as the athlete, you know, maybe a little bit of the actor. I, I know he was, uh, you know, a very uh, staunch on his, his positions uh, to, you know, for promoting African-American and, uh, you know, things that go on there. But I didn't realize, you know, sort of the genius of it to help to bring uh, people. Folks of that color into the, that are in a poverty level uh, try to bring them up levels by you know, educating them in, in finance and starting businesses and things like that. And I guess sort of another uh, famous athlete that tied right into that in, in your book that I didn't realize was Jackie Robinson, who sort of uh, almost morphed along the lines of the way that uh, civil rights were going from the end of World War II when, when he came in b- baseball up into the 60s after his retirement and some of his things so maybe you could speak a little bit about uh, Jackie Robinson's involvement.
1: Yeah, I mean Robinson and Brown don't actually work together but he at, at this you know similar time period is also thinking about economics and by the time he gets into the you know 1960s um you know after Robinson retired he got a job with Chuck uh, Chuck full of nuts the coffee company um, and worked in the private enterprise um, and he uh, established he he thought that the answer was establishing banks, right, banks in the African-American community that would lend money to uh, black businesses, black uh, leaders and uh, began to work, uh, you know, in the 60s doing so. Um, and so, again, you know, Robinson was also. I mean, both. Jim Brown and Jackie Robinson were fairly conservative fiscally, you know, that is to say they put their faith in the kind of capitalist marketplace and they thought, you know, get access to it, you know, get African-Americans access to it and let them and they'll be able to sort of fight their way up, uh, you know, and 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 achieve parity with uh, white America and um, slightly different models for how to do it. But they're both thinking along those lines.
0: Yeah, both of them were, were very uh, clever men, and 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 the folks that they had, and their ideas were, uh, you know, maybe they weren't the successes that they had planned, but they really planted some seeds that sort of had some residual effect that uh, really affected the
1: country and the world. Yeah, and that, and it, and it's interesting though too because both of them. I mean, Robinson's Bank, and I'm actually to embarrassed to say I'm blanking on the name right off the top of my head. I want to say it's Freedom National Bank, but I, I could be slightly wrong on that. But, you know, Robinson's Bank lasts for a while um, and, and does a lot of good things. Brown runs into trouble because he's dependent on political support, you know, and he's, he's, he's aligned with Nixon. (laughs) And, you know, in fact, he endorses Richard Nixon for president in 1972. And that's very controversial in the African-American community because, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't thrilled with Nixon in the black community at that point. Um, And, but, but Brown is like a hand with a handful of other prominent African-American uh entertainers uh, and business leaders who endorse nixon people like sammy davis jr um and others and it 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 sort of creates a little bit of a wedge right so some people in the african-american community are you know looking a little bit of a askance at him and they also think that he's uh you know kind of currying up favor and getting money from the government but is he really you know kind of distributing that as as equitably and fairly as he can and then, of course, Nixon runs into, as you know, a, a wide range of problems in the 70s where the scandals start to break out and Nixon loses clout and loses power. And suddenly, Brown, who had been reliant on those con- that kind of federal help, he starts to see that wash up. And, and so the BEU kind of crumbles and, and fades away a little bit. And some of the branches last. Kansas City branch goes on for decades. Um but not nearly to the same sort of presence that it had in in the late '60s and early '70s, when it was really a, a kind of vibrant thing. Um, and so, one of the questions you know I do do ask in the book, though, is how much of that, you know, sort of faith in the market economy, how much we're getting, you know, just that idea of getting into the economy, is that enough, or or is there more that's needed here? Uh, you know, what's really going to be needed to sort of change the power dynamics and 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 sort of change the wealth gap more permanently?
0: Yeah, most definitely. Some some great points that you bring up in that. Now you have a sort of in that flow and sort of like, again, going to the title of the book and you know, we're, we're thinking that it's, you know, the, the racial equality and the civil rights of those uh, items, but you also bring up another sur- subject that was very high profile in the, the same time frame the sixties and early seventies, the uh, gender equality. And uh, you, you have a, a young lady a tennis star that sort <laughs> of uh, is the face of that. And I'll, Love to hear you speak on, on this topic.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Billie Jean King um comes to prominence in the late 60s. Uh it's amazing how much of this stuff, you know, crosses over in this time period. Um, and I put Billie Jean King and Jim Brown together in that in the first chapter, or the first body chapter, I guess you could say, of the book. Um, which in some ways is an odd pairing because it's a man, and it's a woman, it's a black athlete, it's a white athlete, very different sports. But both of them are interested in economics and both of them are interested in using their cloud as athletes to change the kind of economic system. But they're both interested in in changing the economic game, but work within the system. So they're not really interested in tearing down the system or creating something new. They just want to get more, uh, you know, more wealth, more clout within that structure. So for Billie Jean King, it's about it's about pay, right? Women's tennis players are paid scandalously. You know, much less than the, their male uh, counterparts. And uh, Billie Jean King and some of her peers are driven over the edge. You know, when there's one tournament that's scheduled, and I want to say that the the men's winner—I might get the number slightly wrong off the top of my head—but it's something like the men's champion is going to come away with you know twelve thousand dollars, and the woman's champion is going to get fifteen hundred dollars or something like that, or twelve thousand hmm. dollars versus fifteen hundred, right? Something along those lines. And um, that drives King and and her you know fellow women tennis players, understandably, um, a little bit crazy. And so they 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 vowed to, to do something different. And, and so Billie Jean King really leads the charge to create a separate tour, a new tour for women's uh, players, the Virginia Slims tour. Um, and the idea here is to get better pay for women's players uh, and, and to really empower them so that they can use their market value to get more equitable pay. And it's a, you know, we think about contemporary, and of course, I make these connections, but the the more recent debates with uh, the women's soccer team, the women's national soccer team pushing for equal pay, I mean, you can find a, a much earlier version of this with Billie Jean King and these uh, women's tennis players who are fighting much the same battle, except they're doing it in the early 1970s. Yeah, very...
0: Is extremely interesting. And then you, you sort of take, uh, you know, Billy Jean, you fast forward her into, you know, the, the, the big game, uh, probably the one she's most famous for. And that's the one with, with Bobby Riggs, uh, you know, for sort of that, uh, that battle of the, the genders. And uh, I, I, you know, I knew of that story. I I knew that she had defeated him, but again, I didn't appreciate the the implications that would happen to the country. And I, you know, I thank you again for for giving the details on that. And maybe you could speak to that.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, it's a huge moment. The Battle of the Sexes. Uh, I think one of the things that was most surprising for me as I was doing the research and the writing about that is just how many people tuned in to watch. I mean, it was something like twenty five percent of the American you know, viewing population was watching that game. Right. I mean, it was a, again, it was a huge phenomenon in the same way that the, that Ali Frazier fight was this huge kind of cultural touchstone moment that everybody tuned in. And by the way, promoted and produced by the same guy, Jerry Parenchio is involved in both. Um, so (laughs) I guess he knew what he was doing. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that fight was so, and again, there the case was, you know, the battle of the sexes, this idea of, uh, you know, that, that a male player, Bobby Riggs, who was really a hustler. You know, at that point, I mean, he just loved sort of what he lived for, right, was gambling and and, and sort of he loved that thrill of it. So he um, challenges uh, Billie Jean King. Initially, she turns him down, but then he he defeats Margaret Court. And Billie Jean King says, oh, my gosh, I've got to redeem womanhood, essentially. Right. I've got to take Mm -hmm. him on and show that women because, you know, Bobby Riggs at this point is a retired former champion. He's well past his prime. Um, And so, you know, there's all this hype and build up. Right. You're going to put, you know, male men versus women on the tennis court. Can women really play? uh, You know, can a woman defeat a man? Um, and it it takes on. If we think about context. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about too much here is the context in terms of civil rights, in terms of women's rights. All of this activism is is taking place in the the kind of aftermaths of major upheavals in terms of uh, race and and gender in American life. So, for Billie Jean King to be taken on Bobby Riggs, this is this is putting. You know, women's liberation to the test, right? It's putting this this uptick in women's activism and women's rights activism, you know, kind of on display. um that's and' per-
0: perfect example of our imitating life
1: that's right, yeah. it it it's exactly right. And so, Uh, I think that's why so many people were plugged in, right? These issues were so central. They were in the culture. They were in politics. And now sports is a way to kind of play them out, quite literally. Um, And, and of course, Billie Jean King ends up winning. um, And and people see it as a real validation. And I know King has said over the years that that's the thing that people talk to her the most about. You know, fans will come up to her and she gets more letters about. You know, but it's just so meaningful to so many people because it – in in the same way that people wanted Ali to be that sort of icon and that beacon and, and represent what they're they're hoping for, you know, in terms of African Americans, Billie Jean King, I think, represented for so many women that that spirit of I can do this, I can accomplish things, I can sort of rise above above what I've been limited to.
0: Great story there, and I also liked uh, the story that I really wasn't familiar with, and that was the uh, the Boston Marathon story of a couple of Boston Marathons, which I never realized that the uh, women had not been able to run in the Boston Marathon as, I mean, as late as the sixties. And you, you had, uh, you know, these, these uh, two ladies, uh, Switzer and Gibbs that uh, ended up, you know, I, from my take, you know, they, they weren't participants. They just jumped in and, and ran the race and did it. So maybe, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I was, again, just thinking about what surprised me as I was doing the the research here not only could women not run the Boston Marathon, but the longest race for women that was sanctioned by the AAU was one and a half miles in the mid-1960s, right? (laughs) Which is wild, right? And the idea was that women's bodies couldn't handle it, you know, that it was too, which is ludicrous if you, you know, want to think about childbirth and labor, but in any event, or any number of, I mean, women's bodies can handle a whole heck of a lot here, right? But the idea that Anyway, the the idea was that, you know, women's bodies couldn't handle it. And and, um, so, yeah, Bobby Gibb actually is the first uh, woman to run in the Boston Marathon. She slips into the pack in 1966 and just, um, you know, joins the race. She doesn't have a number, but she runs it and does really well um, and gets some positive attention for it. The next year she comes back to do the same thing. And this time, Catherine Switzer is there. And the difference is, Switzer does have a bib. She has a race number because she registered for the race with just her initials. And so uh, they don't know that it's a woman who they've given this bib to. And you know, she starts running the race, and 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 this is the the famous moment or the iconic moment. I think the reason that there's even more attention generated because Switzer has the number and race officials are alerted. And so Jock Semple, who is this, you know, 60 some odd year old uh, race official comes running out on the course, yelling, you know, to, to give him that number, he wants to rip the number off of her because, you know, she's not supposed to be in the race. And as he does that, and it's all caught on photo, you know, as he does that, she's sort of trying to get away from him. And then her boyfriend, who's a hammer thrower on the Syracuse track team, comes over and body checks, simple off the course. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think just the the image of this old balding white guy trying to grab the number off this, this runner <laughs> really <laughs> sort of brought home to lots of Americans how crazy this all was, right? Here's a woman who's just trying to run this race, is clearly capable of running the race. and And those two women, I think, really start to Create dialogue, new dialogue about what women can do, right? And begin to challenge some of those, um, you know, some of the ideas about sort of femininity and about athleticism and, and, and about women's capabilities in terms of sports.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it was very well stated. And it's I never really connected those dots between the, the civil rights and the, the women's rights. I, I'm aware of both of them, but I, I never really connected the dots and you know the the commonalities between them and the the, the struggle that was going on simultaneously. And then you uh, connected another dot. You know, and I'll say, almost say it like this, you know, meanwhile, back on campus, right. uh, we we have uh, Title IX going on, which, <laughs> again, I was aware of, but didn't connect the dots to this whole, you know, phenomenon going on. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about Title IX and and how that was affecting things.
1: Yeah, and, uh, Title IX passed in 1972. Uh, so if we want to think about time-wise here, that's Gibb and and, and Switzer, or 1967. Uh, Billie Jean King launches Virginia Slims in 71, and, and the Battle of the Sexes is 73. So right as all of that's happening, Congress passes Title IX um, of the higher education. It's an amendment to the Higher Education Act. And if you look at the language of Title IX, it actually doesn't say anything about sports. I mean, you know, if people, if people know Title IX now, they think it's about sports and they think it's about uh, preventing sexual assault. and. Those are both sort of side effects of what the legislation actually is, which is basically to make sure that that women students have access to all the kind of features of of education that male students do. Right. right. And so sports just happen to fall under that. Um, and when it's passed, the original the main intention of that law is to. Lots of graduate schools had quotas that limited, say, the number of, of female uh, medical school students or female law students and things of that sort. And so the law is meant to say you can't do that, right? You can't uh, uh, restrict you know, access to these uh, educational programs on the basis of sex. But almost as soon as the ink is dry, people realize that there are implications for sports because any, any federal institution that receives or any institution that receives federal financial aid, has to provide these equal opportunities, and since pretty much every uh, school uses federally subsidized loans, they're receiving federal aid at least from that, right? So suddenly, people say, "Oh my gosh!" Um, and it's a long slog, and I talk about some of the details in the book. I won't belabor them now, but um, but Title IX is transformative, and and it's it's uh, you know transformative in terms of it finally kicks uh, high schools and colleges into gear to start providing opportunities for women in sports. Um, and again, it's a long, slow battle. The NCAA tries to dig in its heels. Colleges and universities try to dig in their heels and prevent it. Um, but obviously, we can see the, the the effects where in the early 70s, I mean, literally athletic department budgets at schools would be less than 1% of an athletic budget would go towards women's sports uh, and, and many major schools, mm. which is wild especially because you think often those athletic departments are funded in part or mostly by student fees so women were paying in student fees and getting nothing in return for them right because the budget was so small Mm -hmm. so um so yeah i mean the fact that u.s women's soccer is dominant is uh in globe you know global level you know is is really a product of title IX, providing opportunities for women athletes that um that that otherwise wouldn't have been there
0: yeah it's uh and, and you you definitely uh brought those points home and you had a lot of little uh stories that were very interesting you know the, the charlie scott story for your, your alma mater uh yeah. UNC and uh you know the Wyoming Ties, and uh you know some of those stories which are fascinating i won't re- ruin them for the readers you know because it's uh great for the the book but um uh, why don't we, uh, Greg? Why don't you uh, give the title of the book again, and where people can get a copy of it? We've, sure, uh, have...
1: it's called uh, "Beyond the Black Power Salute: Athlete Activism in an Era of Change." Um, it's available through the uh, University of Illinois uh, Press website. You can also find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you you find your books. Um, it's there, uh, and um, yeah, I, I hope you uh, enjoy it. I mean, I think it's a, it's a chance to. Um, think seriously about the stuff that that we all enjoy that is fun, but that also has a lot of meaning to it. And, and I think sports can be uh, a really fun and engaging way to engage with the uh, you know the issues that matter in our day to day lives.
0: It's uh, very, very well said and uh, very well written. And uh, folks, I highly recommend it. It's uh, a great read. It, expect the unexpected. And you're going to learn a lot from this, uh, even if you think you know a lot about sports, because I certainly did. And uh, turn some light bulbs on for me. So, Greg, I appreciate you, you coming on today. I appreciate you writing this book and sharing it with me. And uh, you in Illinois Press sending me a copy ahead of time to, to prepare for this. So it was definitely interesting, sir. And uh, I wish you well with it.
1: Hey, thanks very much, and thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Good luck with the show, and and again, thanks for having me on.
0: We're dribbling around and see the shot clock's almost out, so we got to put up our shot and come back tomorrow for some more great sports history.